is a picture of my grandson. His name is Maximus. <laughs> Maximus is an awesome dude. He loves adventure. He is mischievous. He has all kinds. I mean, his, he, he has a, a, a drivenness about him that reflects much of his dad. And it, it, it's amazing how much that appears as a little kid. He's like one year old. He's like 16, 17 months, I think, right now. Is that what, how old is he? Yeah. Okay, they, <laughs> they don't count. They barely sleep, so it, whatever. But I, I love Maximus, and Maximus and um, Georgia May has been, have been coming over to our house. And I've noticed this thing about Maximus is he's, he's either really happy or really grumpy. <laughs> like he has no in-between. And so, I mean, this is, how cute is that, right? <laughs> Look at that. I love it. And so he, he's been at our house, and of course, um, Nani and Pop Pop, uh, we, I did not choose that name, by the way. I was chosen by Georgia May, who was the first grandchild. But here's what I've noticed about Maximus, and really, this is true about every child, right? There's something that goes on inside of them when you say, uh-uh, no. When he wants to touch something or do something that I don't want him to do. And so it's like, Maximus, nuh-uh, and he'll be like, Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> and he'll just keep like going. And then if you just say, don't do it, and you turn around, he's like, boom. But he will, he will do what he wants to do. It's the most powerful thing in the universe, second only to God's sovereignty, the human will, the human will, powerful. And so, and so uh, Maximus will, will show me the power of his human will over and over and over again. And I think this is the struggle that we have as humans, as Jesus followers, as disciples. We've gotta settle something. We gotta settle that our will is surrendered to Jesus. I think the nature of our faith is helping people surrender to the idea that God's ways are better than ours. That God is like a loving parent trying to protect his children. Not like a mean guy who's trying to kill all the fun in your life. And this is a very challenging thing for lots of people in our culture. And it is also really a, a challenge, I think, for people who follow Jesus, for people who profess to be a Christian. And our culture kind of pushes against surrendering to God, right? It's a, it's a bit more about you. <laughs> you be you. You do you. Be true to yourself. Like, like everything's about you and what you decide. 
The third story in the Bible, you can check it out in Genesis 3. It's the third story in the Bible. It creates this picture and helps us understand how flawed humanity is. Perfect garden, perfect job, perfect marriage, perfect relationship with God. Well, I'd like to do it on my own, please. And so I think we have a challenge as we're going through this series called Disciple. The series has this subtitle, Be With Jesus, Become Like Jesus, and Do What Jesus Did. It seems like a high bar. And in some ways, I guess it could be, but here's what I would challenge you to think in these terms. That if you can settle that his ways are better than yours, that his ideas about your life are probably um, more insightful, more generous, more prosperous, more secure, stronger, peaceful than anything you could accomplish without him. If you can settle that, then you can learn to love and obey Jesus. But every disciple has got to settle whether or not they're going to love and obey. We have this technical definition of disciple we're using. It's a lifelong learner. <laughs> I like that. A lifelong learner. Why do we need to be lifelong learners? Well, number one, because you never stop learning. And most of that's because <laughs> figuring out how to obey so hard. Because your will is so strong. A lifelong learner, follower, and friend of Jesus who helps others become a lifelong learner, follower, and friend of Jesus. That's where we're going as a church. That's what we have to embrace. Now, last week, we said that we're disciples of Jesus, not converts. Because a convert is a person that goes from one belief system to another. Oh, I had this belief system, now I'm going to change to this. No, a, a person who follows Jesus is a, a different it's a different process. It's a supernatural thing. A disciple is someone who has an, an apprenticeship with Jesus. Why don't you say that word with me? Apprenticeship. It means you do your life like he did his. You start to pattern your life after his, and you do it relationally. You do it with him. So we're disciples, not converts. Number two, he said, we're followers. Everybody say follower. We're followers. Hey, I know this is brilliant. I know this is deep. But if you're a follower, that means <laughs> you don't lead. We said we were followers, not experts. And the problem with Christianity in America is we think we're all becoming experts. Because that's the culture we live in. We've got to be an expert. I gotta become an expert. If I could just be a little more of an expert, if I could just know a little bit more about the Bible, then maybe, just maybe, I could lead a group. <laughs> Wrong thinking. Can I tell you that Jesus let the disciples do all the stuff? Right. Casting demons out, healing people, doing all kinds of things, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and they were still a bunch of knuckleheads. Right. You got potential. <laughs> I'm telling you. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be an expert. You just have to be a follower. Number three, we talked about how we are together. You can't be a disciple alone. It doesn't work that way. 
It goes against everything that the, the word means. We are a, a, a disciple group of people that are following Jesus. And so we're, we're not doing it alone. We're not working it out by ourselves. The very nature of laying down your life for somebody else, right? Jesus lays down his life for us and as a disciple we follow his example and lay our lives down for others. That's how you learn how to be a disciple. Is you learn from doing it, from laying your life down for others. So if you missed any of that last week or any of the messages in this series, I encourage you to go to our YouTube channel and go back and review it because we're in this process of redefining what it means to be a disciple in 21st century Austin, Texas. <laughs> like, like, like we're trying to figure out how to live it out in this culture. Not first century Jesus culture, but this culture. Right? And so we're taking our values of presence, relationship, mission, we're stripping them away, or stripping them down to their most common and important essential elements, and then we're reevaluating our tactics. Everybody say tactics. Our church tactics. We have to reevaluate whether or not we're doing a good job. If you look at the statistics across American Christianity, the picture is not good. We're not doing a great job. We're struggling to keep up um, with population growth. New believers coming at a very slow rate. We're not really um, having great dialogue. Part of that's just our culture, right? Nobody's having very good dialogue. But if you look at all the trends of the American church, we're kind of going down Instead of up, we're not even keeping, we're not even keeping pace. Missiologists and church planters David and Paul Watson, they paint a pretty grim picture in their landmark book called Contagious Disciple Making. <laughs> That's a book. I want to recommend it to you. Contagious Disciple Making. Here's what they say. They say, the modern church has made the Christian life way too easy for its members. Uh-oh. This has marginally increased the numbers attending our churches, but we're fairly certain it has caused many more problems than it solved. We've made salvation so easy that people can make their profession of faith or join the church and not change any behaviors that are disobedient or contrary to the word of God. In our efforts to swell the ranks of the church, to be inclusive, to be politically correct, impress others, we have thrown away one of the most important and foundational teachings of the Bible, obedience. Turn to your neighbor, say, buckle up. Here we go. Today, today we're going to look at the teachings of Jesus and the concept of love and obedience. You want to join me? John 14. I encourage you to look it up with me on your Bible or on your phone, or you can read it in the, on the screen. But I encourage you to, to find where it's at. If you want to follow the message notes, you can use the QR code. But I want you to, I want you to spend some time in this passage this week. I'm going to read a big portion, and I'm, I'm going to read several verses. We're going to start in verse 15. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, obey my commandments. One translation says, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Another says, If you love me, you should obey my commandments. 
Verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Another word for that in other translations is counselor, comforter. That's the Holy Spirit. He says, another advocate who will never leave you. You'll never have to be alone. You'll never have to be fearful. You can't make it. Jesus is promising that you're going to have an advocate to help you. Verse 17, he is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you. And now, he lives with you now and later will be in you. Verse 18, no, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Those who accept my commands, my commandments, and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I, I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other disciple with that name, said to him, Lord, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not to the world at large? <laughs> I love this question. I love this question because hidden underneath this question is, wait a minute, Jesus, this doesn't sound like taking over. This doesn't sound like you're going to conquer the Romans. You're, you're like talking some kind of gibberish that I, it's something I love and all that. What? What? Very much like the disciples, we tend to think, we're going to win some kind of conflict by taking over. By voting for the right person. I'm okay with voting. I think we should vote. Everybody should vote. I'm not sure it makes any difference anymore, but I think it's, re I think it's really important. Sorry, that's just spilled out. I don't know. It's all corrupt, man. It's all messed up. It's all broken. It's all broken. Anyway, anyway, I still think it's important to vote because we have a, a, a constitutional republic with the freedom to express our opinion. And if you don't vote, you shouldn't complain. All right, that's enough of that. So Judas is like, ah, this doesn't sound like what we were thought you were going to do. Verse 23. Are you guys still with me? Yeah. Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. <laughs> That's so funny, isn't it? Jesus is like, well, how come you're not going to reveal yourself to... Judas, pipe down. If you love me, you'll do what I say. Anyone who doesn't love me... Oh, sorry. Uh, my father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my, my words are not my own. What I'm telling you is from the father who sent me. I'm telling you these things now while I'm still with you. But when the father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I've told you. I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you. I'm going away, but I will come back to you again. If you really loved me, you'd be happy that I'm going to the Father, who is greater than I am. I've told you these things before 
they happen so that when they do happen, you will believe. I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me, but I will do what the Father requires of me so that the world will know that I, what does it say? That I love the Father. Ominous words from Jesus in this conversation he's having with his disciples. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about love and obedience. Ten Commandments are the most famous. A list of things that help the people of God learn how to live according to God's standards and ideas. In fact, the Old Testament is over and over again, more commands and wrestling with obedience with God's people. Jesus appears on the scene in the New Testament and he starts to change the focus from what to do and even how to do it. And he starts to drill down in the human heart and helps us understand why. Why? Why, are we, why do we need to obey? And in this passage, a pivotal key passage between John 13 and John 15 where 15 is abiding in the vine of Jesus and remaining in him and 13 is all about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It's a it's a important it's an important statement on who we are and what we are called to do. Jesus equated here obedience to love. In the gospel of John verse 15, if you love me, obey my commandments. Verse 21, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. Verse 24, anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. Verse 31, I will do what the Father requires of me so that the world will know that I love the Father. I love that that this little phrase is in here because what it's saying is that Jesus must do the same thing he's calling us to do. He's going to model it for us. Now think about this, because Jesus stands in stark contrast to the religious leaders of his day. The religious leaders of his day were fixated, consumed with the law. They were consumed with precisely and stringently obeying the law, but their hearts were far from God. In fact, they were missing what God was doing. Look how, look how Jesus addresses them in the, his kind and gentle and meek voice when he says in Matthew 23, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus was really hard on these guys because of their hypocrisy, because outside they looked pretty good. Inside there was death and wickedness. One of my great concerns about our church and the American church is that there's too much attention paid to looking good on the outside and not enough to looking inward to deal with the death and wickedness that so easily takes hold. The way of religion 
is filled with the need to look good on the outside. <laughs> the way of relationship, however, is the result of humility and a willingness to obey and to fail and to try again. You see, God is not interested in your obedience alone. That's a shocking statement. God's not interested in your obedience alone. He's interested in love that leads to obedience. There's a tension here that we're not really in touch with. You see, he's not interested in perfection or presentation. He's interested in relationship and repentance. He's not interested in public displays and religious works. He's interested in strategic collaboration with him and deep and meaningful relationships. Relationships with him and relationships with each other. That's because obedience without love, follow me now, obedience without love is legalism dead religion and love without obedience is a lie it's relational hypocrisy are you with me say amen or oh me I don't know what one do you want to say (laughs) Jesus is interested in honesty integrity in our lives with him he wants us to respond and relate to him in a deep and meaningful connection But he also wants us to obey because we've settled that his way is better than ours. It's clear from the words of Jesus and the writings of John that there can be no love for Christ without obedience to Christ. We can sing all the worship songs ever written, have a great time, proclaim to everyone that we love Jesus, But these songs and statements are meaningless and hypocritical if we're not obedient to him. And this is why I'm so concerned about our church and other churches, because for the most part, we refuse to make disciples. We barely think we can make, we barely think we can be one. We're like, yeah, I'm just trying, just do my best. We don't have a grasp of the power of God and the grace of God and the relationship that we're in with him that strengthens us and gives us what we need to share with someone else. And so I think this is such a struggle, but we gotta drill down because you can't be a disciple without love and obedience. You can't be a disciple without settling that obeying him is what I'm gonna do. And obeying him regardless of the consequences. Ooh. Regardless of the consequences, regardless of what other people think, regardless of if we'll be persecuted or, or we'll be belittled, or regardless, hey, hey, here's the, here's the other part, or regardless of the approval. Ugh. Obeying for others' approval doesn't last very long, it doesn't go very deep, it doesn't clean the inside. So you can't love God and ignore what he tells you to do. You can't obey with pride and arrogance or selfishness to impress others. So 
If, you do, if, you, if, you, if we do this, if we, if we obey for others' sake, we're no better than the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the law, who missed spectacularly what Jesus was up to. The people who knew the word the best, knew the scriptures the most, were most interested, and we, these guys get a bad rap because many of them, their hearts, they wanted to see the Messiah come, but they had no way of accepting the way in which Jesus would come, a lowly, poor, traveling evangelist who kept talking about yielding and surrendering, who kept sharing the message of love and the grace that is in the kingdom of God, but they couldn't grasp it. They saw it happening in a different way. Eugene Peterson, who is a brilliant author of the Message Bible, and he wrote several other books. He, he wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And the subtitle was uh, Discipleship in an Instant Society. I highly recommend it. He says, our lives are lived well only when they are lived on the terms of their creation. With God loving and us being loved. With God making and us being made. With God revealing and us understanding. With God commanding and us responding. And don't forget this. Don't forget this. Church, our feelings do not define our love. Our words do not define our love. It's our motives, our actions, and our obedience to Jesus that define our love for him. And by the way, this is true of your marriage. <laughs> your words <laughs> and your feelings are not strong enough <laughs> to make it last for several years. There's got to be more. There's got to be actions. it has got to be the right motivation. Because you can only go a few years before the Spouse smells it out. I probably should have said a few months. We cannot call ourselves disciples or followers of Jesus without settling obedience, that it is what we're called to. And when we realize that we're in error, we return to him. We repent immediately because the issue of obedience is settled. Listen to the final story in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives us in Matthew 7. It's his last story. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father and who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. You didn't love me. You were in it for yourself, or you were in it for performance, or you were in it to, for approval. Or you were... He said, away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught with one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Interesting little tidbit of information. Why did Jesus sound so much different? Because there's something about integrity 
that rings in the hearts of people. I'm telling you, they know what we're supposed to be like sometimes better than we know what we're supposed to be like. Because they'll call you on it. I thought you were a Christian. What, what is, what is our, our culture, the, their biggest hang-up with Christianity, what is it? Hypocrisy, hip, hypocrites, right? We judge them for something, and then we're just as guilty. This is, this is, Jesus is, Jesus is nailing down something here. He concludes this Sermon on the Mount. Let's go to, you, you might have heard this story in Sunday school. Let's go to Sunday school for a minute. You ready? You ready? Sunday school for a minute. Take this simple quiz. Okay, what does the rock represent? What does the rock represent? Some will say, some will say, A, Christian theology. Christ, no. It's not how much you know about God or how much you've studied the Bible. That's not what does it. The second one is the church. That's the institutional answer. Yeah, the church. You need to obey the church, man. No. That's, the, that's not the right answer either. What is it? Jesus. A bunch of you said Jesus. That's the Sunday school answer. Good job. <laughs> but it's still not the correct answer for what Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about, it's, a, it, it's the right answer, but it's incomplete. Because what Jesus is really saying here is he's talking about obedience to Jesus' commands. That's what the context of this is. And by the way, this is really a cool idea. He's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. He's not talking about the Old Testament because Jesus had a whole new play on everything that had been set up to that point and started drilling down to motivations as the standard. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Drilling down to the motivation of why you're doing what you're doing. And so he finishes with this little story. And it's a simple message. Every little kid understands it. You learn it in Sunday school. It's basically saying, look, don't be stupid. Don't build your life on the sand. Build it on the rock. Do what Jesus says. It's a simple message, but it's commonly misinterpreted. As a kid, I was taught that the guy who built his house on the rock was a metaphor for the Christian. And the guy who built his house on the sand was a metaphor for non-Christians. So the guy who built his house on the rock was a Christian. The other guy was a heathen sinner dog. <laughs> but, but, this story is about two houses that look the same. It's about two houses that look the same. The only difference is what's below the surface. Jesus is actually contrasting two different kinds of people who follow him. Those that are genuine and those who are not. And according to Jesus, they both look the same. Theologian John Stott, he says, both read the Bible, go to church, listen to sermons, and buy Christian literature. The reason you often cannot tell the difference between them is that the deep foundations of their lives are hidden from view. Listen, the most important thing about us as God's people, what defines our life is often hidden from others. Immediately not able to be seen. But I'm talking about our obedience to Jesus and his commands. Jesus says it's the secret hidden reality on which we construct our identity. Our identity. We are lovers of Jesus who obey him. That is the first thing you have to tackle if you want to be a disciple. 
Sky Jathani, author and pastor, he says, the world celebrates the grandeur of the house, but the Lord alone knows the quality of its foundation. Is the foundation of your life with Jesus obedience driven by love, or is it something else driving you? Is your identity settled as a disciple, or is your identity defined as something else? Is, is, is disciple kind of way down the list of who you say, would say you are? What I'm, what I, what, the reason we're going through this fall, and I'm asking you all to join a group, and, and let's talk about this, is because I think we have to move disciple up the list. <laughs> it has to get first in line. I want to finish with identity statements. Just a few identity statements, because I don't want you to misunderstand what's going on here between love and obedience. First identity statement is, we don't obey God to get God's love. We don't obey to get God's love. Why? Because he's already demonstrated his love to us in Christ. His love is totally out there, waiting for you. He, he shared his love first. There is no doubt that God loves you. You don't ever have to doubt that. You don't ever have to wonder. He loves you more than any other being in the universe. The second identity statement is we don't obey to get stuff. <laughs> in that case, the stuff would be the object of our motives and affection. Man, this is where American Christians are really in trouble. We try to obey to get stuff because that's where the good stuff is. That's where the prosperity is. That's where the blessing is. Listen, can I just tell you? Money is not always a blessing from God. Most often, it's a test. Number three, identity statement. We don't obey to get holy. What? Wait a minute. No, we're made holy through faith in Christ and through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Like, he's working in our lives. Like, he's doing the work. And we're just responding. We're just surrendering. So, we're not getting holy by being obedient. We obey, number four, we obey out of love and devotion. We obey out of love and devotion. We have a secure and intimate relationship with Jesus. Let me highlight from the story, the band... Can the band come up? Let me highlight for you the story of Jesus. Now pay attention to me. Don't look at the band. Hey, you guys are like kindergarten students. Now listen. Listen to this. The story that Jesus told about the two houses, the, the way the story plays out is not God ruined one of the guy's houses. The story is, the storms of life are tough. Storms coming. Storms gonna be capable of destroying things in your life. And we see it all around us. Some of you are living through it right now. God's not doing that to you. He loves you. What Jesus is saying is there is a way to live where the foundation is so solid and so secure that no matter what storm comes your way, 
you don't lose your house. You can be secure. And it's rooted in the idea of loving God and obeying him. Loving and obeying. And managing that tension. Because there's tension there. Everybody wants to solve tensions. You can solve problems. You can't solve tension. You, you have to hold it. You have to carry it throughout your life. Because some of you are struggling with love today. You're mad at God. Still doing what you know you should do, but pfft, relationship's not too tight. Some of you are on the other side. You're like, you love God, but your life is really messed up and you're not obeying him, you haven't obeyed him, that's why the storm's got you. And you've been even blaming God for the storm. What Jesus is saying is, man, this world, it is in trouble, it is broken. There are storms everywhere. And what you need is a firm foundation. 